0: I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Today, I'm joined by Maggie Quinlan and Bethany Johnson, award-winning teachers and writers at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. We're talking about their recent article in Health Communication, as well as their just-published book by Rutgers University. Their book, poetically titled, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise, investigates the history of expertise around mothering in the media, from the newspapers, magazines, doctor's records, and personal papers of the 19th century to today's websites, Facebook groups, and Instagram feeds. Johnson and Quinlan find surprising parallels between today's mothering experts and their Victorian counterparts, but they also explore how social media has placed unprecedented pressures on new mothers who are wrestling with familiar concerns that range from preconception to postpartum depression. I got my copy two weeks ago, picked it up and couldn't put it down. In fact, I'm excited to use it in a class I'm teaching this fall. Maggie and Bethany, welcome to Defining Moments podcast, and thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having us. Mm -hmm. It's a real honor. Thank you.
0: So at the heart of your book is really how people communicate about motherhood and in particular, the life cycle of early motherhood. You address a host of experiences from pregnancy to the postpartum period. And the issues you address include both mother's health and baby milestones, My question for you is, what led you to narrow your focus to the early life cycle of motherhood?
2: So our focus came, it was two-pronged, as I think many researchers find. Maggie and I were already writing about doctor-patient communication um, in reproductive endocrinology situations, so infertility um, treatments and fertility treatments. And we were also writing about twilight sleep. In the early 20th century, which is a particular cocktail that erases one's memory of birth, but they are still conscious for that birth. So we were deep into um, reproductive health and reproduction, and we were also going through and um, becoming mothers ourselves. My journey was a little longer. I was in infertility treatment for four years. Um, none of that was successful, but I did end up having two children, likely as a result of some surgeries um, that myself and my partner had. But Maggie was with me for the tail end of that. So, so we were seeking out becoming mothers, experiencing pregnancy and some of these things and researching these issues. And we kept finding things on social media that really surprised us. And we kept sending screenshots to each other. And at some point we realized, hey, (laughs) I think this might all be connected. Let's look at it a little more deeply. And the reason that we focused particularly on these particular crises, infertility, premature birth, infant loss, um, gaps in care, and the mother-child dyad, that partnership of health, is because the medical gaze and the social gaze tends to be the most sharp on people going through, you know, preconception through the early toddlerhood years. There is a lot of pressure to do it right. And secondly, these are the times when You may be least prepared for the types of crises you face because you don't know anything about premature birth until it happens to you. You don't know anything about infertility until it happens to you. You don't know how to give birth until you're doing it. Um, And so these are times when people might be most likely to reach out for expertise, to seek out expertise, um, and most vulnerable to very confident opinions that may or may not be rooted in expertise.
0: Uh Uh-huh. What I absolutely find remarkable about your work is how you move across time in thinking through the expertise that mothers seek out, right? During what you describe as really unfamiliar, unexpected moments of uncertainty, right? Mm -hmm. And ambiguity, you tell a really nuanced story about the expertise that individuals encounter in in this life cycle of early motherhood, and you do it through an innovative method Mm -hmm. that includes both an analysis of historical texts, in-depth interviews, and social media analysis. Can you walk us through the process that you engaged in, to be able to develop the arguments that you offer in this book?
1: Yeah, I think one thing that has been really helpful for me in terms of having Bethany as a research partner is that I would come across these experts on social media and become extremely anxious. And so I would text Bethany a, a screenshot, you know, mm-hmm. oh my gosh should I be drinking Shakeology or am I drinking too much Shakeology and the vitamin K is going to ruin my baby's eyes? And, you know, so I would have these like total anxious moments and I would, you know, text Bethany a a question and she would be like, okay, let's think through this. Right. And Bethany was always good at putting, putting it into context. Like, no, doctors have been telling women this, you know, what you should and should not eat. During pregnancy, throughout history, and so we have a lot of fun throughout our writing of thinking of where to place um, these historical moments and put them in conversation with um, with social media and the way Bethany copes with her anxiety, which she expresses <laughs> a little differently than I do because I wear it all on my sleeves. Is uh, <laughs> she? She's really good at researching and you know talking with individuals and getting the the experts that either work or don't work for her and, and making decisions for her family. And so so it's been fun to, to do that together and, you know, to figure out how that works. And one thing that we had, um, we went to Clemson University to look at the Clemson um, family archives. And while mm. we were there, we met with um, Dr. Joe Mazur, who um, trained us in how to use a program called Radian 6. And before I had access to this, when I used to do some of my work on social media, I would cut and paste from, from Facebook, from blogs, from um, different social media sources into a Word document, and then I would code the data that way. And what Bethany and I love about this program that Clemson gave us access to through the social media center is that it pulls all of the data for us really quickly, and so um, we had Excel sheets and PDFs, and we could just click on different links about a topic, and you could narrow it down to the last two weeks or the last you know couple months mm-hmm. for all of the source for all of the hits on the different topics that we were we were. Um, exploring through the book. And so it really was an organized, very helpful way that I think um, I'm hoping more and more comm scholars and other scholars will start, you know, using this as a way to collect data um, and, you know, to get an idea of the conversations, the public conversations happening.
2: And, you know, what Dr. Quinlan, um, Maggie, has taught me so much, um, primarily with uh, collecting the stories of people who are alive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> New for me as a 19th century early 20th century historian but you know Lynn in your work and even in your your first podcast for this season with Dr. Ellingson you both talk about how stories are partial and I'd like to frame our method around that idea so I can bring in stories like Maggie mentioned that we found in the Clemson family archives but those stories are partial right they are built from the remaining scraps I can put them in a historical context but No one who was there for that is still alive. And even their perspective would be partial because it would be theirs. So we took that piece. And then Maggie has been teaching me how to interview people, do rhetorical analysis um, and do other sorts of qualitative research and then use a quantitative source like radian six and dig the stories out of that. So we're always creating narratives that speak back to what we are seeing around us and our goal throughout using all these different types of stories, which I think um, provide us a lot of different perspective. When we put them together, we use that to argue for a broader, more inclusive narrative in all of these spaces where people are feeling these anxieties. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. You. You could have chosen simply to focus on contemporary social media using Radian 6 to to help you collect and and archive that, but you didn't, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to pick up on a thread that you shared and really dig deeper into the value-added nature of your inclusion of historical archival research, because... Bottom line, I don't think enough people do this, and I think mm-hmm. it, from from a reader's perspective, it made your findings incredibly rich and nuanced to look at that across time. But I'd love to hear you speak to that from your perspective.
2: Um, I, uh, <laughs> I'm so excited about this. If Maggie, do you mind if I go first? Go first. (laughs) Uh, Of course, this is my, I was just in an archive for 12 hours yesterday, so I'm really amped about archival work even more than than I am every moment. Um, So for me, rooting something in the the historical, it, it works a lot how it does for Maggie. It removes the particular shame I might feel in a moment, Um, and I'm going to use chapter two, which is about infertility treatment and the message, just relax. Um, A lot of people who really loved me and supported me and really wanted to say something that would help. That a version of just relax, including doctors that I visited early on in the process. And I never found it helpful. I actually find it stressful to hear just relax um, because it feels like a directive and then I feel like I have work to do and that's not relaxing to me. So, um, But I couldn't kind of let it go because I, I heard it from all of the people we interviewed in our early qualitative studies on doctor-patient um, communication. So the only thing I know how to do as a historian is to say, okay, this is this is not helpful. When did it start? Well, Maggie and I found it 150 years ago. And we found it every decade for the last 150 years. And in that chapter, we trace all of the different ways, all the different vocabulary and methods and structures we've used to tell people to just relax. And then we find that not only has it never worked, but... Um, Maybe we should relieve ourselves of the whole idea of just relaxing because we've been doing it for 150 years. And if it hasn't worked yet, I promise you it won't work. It's just not going to work, right? So we get to walk away from things that don't serve us when we see how long we've been doing them. The other thing it does is it adds a certain gravitas to say, if we've been doing this for 150 years and it hasn't worked, what are we doing? <laughs> we really need to stop doing this. So it gives us a better reason to let it go and a bigger reason to stop it going forward. Hmm.
0: So Bethany, in listening to the story that you just shared, it's clear that this is not merely a scholarly exercise. You both get personal. Both of you had a toddler and, and you both became pregnant during the writing of this book. Can you talk to us about what that was like to be pregnant and to mother during the process of writing about health challenges that often accompany early motherhood? What was that like?
1: So, I mean, for me, it was, I was already going to be spending the time, you know, on the internet, I was going to be researching, um, different questions or different experiences that I was going through or different anxieties that I, you know, potentially had. And so instead of just feeling like that was wasted time, um, it helped me to feel like I was actually doing something productive that, um, you know, it was that we were able to have use of of this experience that we would send screenshots to each other of different articles that we read or different conversations that we had with doctors when going through these different um these different stages and so um that was that was helpful for me i also realized at certain points that the book may not have been a healthy thing for us to be doing at the time so (laughs) we knew at certain points that we that I got pregnant before Bethany and we didn't know what her path was going to be like knowing that we both wanted another child and so we said okay we really need to get the infertility chapter over so that we can yeah be in a healthy place to to move forward or you know certain chapters needed to go first in order to allow us to be able to write and research together knowing that we weren't Always going through the same experiences, and we have different health challenges throughout our pregnancies. And so, um, to be mindful of of each other throughout that experience.
2: And Lynn, we so it was July of twenty seventeen. Yeah, July of twenty seventeen, and we were really just diving into writing this book. And Maggie, do you remember you were going to go to a fertility doctor because you? you were not ovulating and you weren't sure about getting pregnant. And then you went to your doctor and they said, yeah, well, you're not because you're two months pregnant. So (gasps) surprise, you know, and we sort of went, Oh, Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well let's, let's get started writing this book. But that month you and I had felt so uh, sort of over emotionally engaged in the book because the chapter we wrote first was the chapter about child loss. Um, and we knew that it would just, break our hearts to write it, but it was a story we had to tell, and we wanted to tell the stories of others who were so generously sharing their journeys with us, and I remember both you and I did a lot of processing um, over the phone and over text message about how we were trying to practice self-care, but both of us were just really, really emotional about it, and come to find out later, both of us were pregnant and didn't know, Mm. Um, because I was also pregnant and didn't know it Mm -hmm. (laughs) that month. Um, and so looking back, you know, the experience has, has been, as Maggie said, so deeply embodied for us in ways that we didn't understand or anticipate. Um, and, you know, Maggie had to, and and she talks about this in our defining moments piece, the, the last trimester of her pregnancy had to actually delete some social media apps off of her phone. Um, and, and I had to take some similar measures because, I think when you spend time researching it, you start overchecking, <laughs> and mm-hmm. then it starts to take up more of your time than is needed, and it's actually hard to step away from that research practice um, and, and find some balance in your life. So that was something we struggled with, especially as we were going through birth and the postpartum period. Again, these were also resources for us. So. It was really complicated and we were so glad to have Defining Moments as a space to write about that piece of our research, especially during writing the book, because it wasn't something that we could write about within the book. Um, so we we're really thankful to be able to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. What you experienced as profound vulnerability was really turned into a gift for mm-hmm. others, um, Because you generously recount and reflect on that experience and you share that. And in doing so, you enlarge our repertoire of stories available for us to make sense of, right? Mm -hmm. Those crises of self and how you make sense of self when you're surrounded by so much expertise and you're trying to determine the validity, the truthfulness of that and how to make sense of that and how to process it. So what mm-hmm. a gift for listeners and for readers of your work that that you're willing to share those experiences with us.
1: And we really wanted to learn from those whose experiences were very different from our own, too, mm-hmm. that, for you know, we, we were very interested in the stories that people don't hear or the stories that don't show up on, you know, on, on people's news feeds about their experiences of, of motherhood because they're not um, middle class, white, cisgendered, um, mm-hmm. you know, heterosexual, like those kinds of things. And so I think Bethany and I really, um, you know, we're interested in ta- and definitely in talking and speaking with people's experiences that were different than ours.
2: Especially when we struggled with our priv- from a privileged position, we thought, my gosh, this is already hard. Let's talk about the ways that it gets harder because that's an important story to tell if we want to make sure that everybody is getting what they need during these periods of difficulty.
0: Mm-hmm. In your health communication article, you really own that privilege and you talk about how you had sought out in in your second pregnancies both of you right with the research that you've been doing to create um, a plan so that your postpartum experience that that period that extends past childbirth into the first year you really wanted to have a plan and despite those those best laid efforts, things fell apart. And you struggled, (laughs) both of you. Bethany, for you, you recount the difficulties that you experienced in trying to breastfeed your son Otto, a process Mm -hmm. that ultimately led you to use donor milk. For listeners who haven't yet read your article, can you talk to us about those early struggles?
2: Yeah. um, So one of the things that Maggie has encouraged me to talk about that sort of well frame the struggle, um, Maggie and I are very much in the fed is best camp. Um, For me, breastfeeding is so important for my personal health. I have gestational diabetes which is not controlled by diet even though I'm on the diet the whole pregnancy. I have insulin resistance and I use insulin throughout the pregnancy. This means I have to be induced on a very specific day according to the laws of our state. And it means I have to be in the high-risk ward after my babies are born. Um, If I breastfeed for a full 12 months, it reduces my long-term risk of developing type 2 diabetes by 40%. And there are many longitudinal studies showing that impact. So I am also fighting to breastfeed for myself because of my long-term health. So it feels very personal to me. um, And and that's not really a narrative I see coming up in the breastfeeding conversations. Um, I'm trying to protect my pancreas long-term. So when my son was born and we realized he had a lip and tongue tie at three weeks and we had that revised Um, I had some pumping difficulties, um, and because he had that lip and tongue tie, my supply wasn't really where it should be. Um, so I did actually breastfeed auto for 13 months. I just supplemented with four other people's breast milk and I say in the, uh, in the article that, um, It took an extra day for my milk to come in and because Maggie is not just a tremendous scholar and teacher to me but also a dear friend, she packed her two kids under four into the car with a cooler of her own frozen breast milk and drove it an hour to my house and I spoon fed it to Otto when he was 48 hours old. So for anyone listening... We have real embodied research going on here. <laughs> we, we go in deep and and then we want to be honest about that because we, we want other people who are having these struggles to, to hear what it can be like and how it works. But social media was a real barbed place for me during this time because it was the place that I found breast milk and it was also the place where I had to see posts during, you know, international breastfeeding week, you know, like I breastfed through this and I breastfed through that. And I was just thinking, you know, I am trying my best and I don't have what I need. And it was really stressful for me at points to see that conversation, even though I knew it could be really positive for other people. So there was a moment when I had to take myself off of social media and I had Maggie and my other friend, Lindsay, um, posting in their local Facebook groups asking for the breast milk that I needed to supplement. Um, Otto also couldn't have dairy, so the type of formula that would have been available to him was so outrageously expensive that it was much more cost-effective as well for me to find a local person that had extra milk who was also on a dairy-free diet. But yeah, there were a lot of challenges and there were some, some really low moments for me and i was lucky to have great support and a great community and really generous people and not everyone has that you know we we interviewed someone named Liam and he had his daughter Cypress and um, his story is in the charlotte observer right now and we've been really excited to see his story come out in the news but he had a lot of trouble getting donor breast milk and there was some apprehension from some people about give, you know having a man Show up to get breast milk. And so we've seen the ways that my privilege, being sort of quote unquote the right kind of mother, you know, educated, white, straight, all of these things that have been part of the historical narrative of privilege, really enabled me to have resources during a really tough time that other people struggle to have. Um, And so we want to tell our story alongside of the stories of others who are having a harder time to say, you know, it shouldn't be this way.
0: In hearing you, it strikes me that social media is at once a helpful source of resources and expertise and also a landmine of difficulties. Mm -hmm. But one of the takeaways from your experience is how to have others help you navigate that. And and that might mean at any given point in time you take yourself off of those platforms, but others are available to help you still access the resources that can come from those
1: online networks. For me, you know, I I as a as a new mom, I spent a lot of time up in the middle of the night and you know, most people are sort of off social media at that point, but you can also connect with people in different time zones and other mothers who are up throughout the middle of the night. And it's interesting because um, if somebody responds to you with some helpful advice, you don't really know anything about them. You don't know about their expertise. And so the, you know, some people are are giving giving advice. and you know, Beth as Bethany says, anybody who is really confident, is seen as believable in some of these conversations and so trying to figure out you know which camp i'm in at that point or you know which part of the continuum is going to help me make sense of the situation that i'm in and so you know trying to navigate that and you'll have nurses and doctors responding um you'll have you, you know alternative medicine individuals and you know various. Um, very, you know, well-trained medical individuals. And so trying to figure out where you fit into into how people respond to any question that you have.
0: Compounds the difficulty of sense-making about that information overload, right? That's around us.
2: That's where history was helpful to us as well. Um, one of the things that we trace throughout the book and that we examine in other places is that you know, old information becomes new again. And if you don't know that it's been around before, it can seem really new and different. We actually talk about an article that came out that everyone was sharing all over Facebook and Instagram about, you know, I think it was called A Hundred Year Old Fertility Treatment Gives Women New Hope. And it, it was the HSG test, which puts fluid into the fallopian tubes and up into the uterus, and it gives you know, a radiology report about how your internal um, structural health is, and it can show if you have occluded fallopian tubes, a T-shaped uterus, all this sort of stuff. Well, you know, in the article, the gentleman that wrote it said, you know, when people do this, they can get pregnant, not realizing that virtually 100% of people that get fertility treatment have already had this test because it's required before you have an IUI or IVF. There is There are very few practices, if any, in the country that will do treatment on you without you having had this test because they need to see what is going on inside your body. And yet this was peddled as something that was something we should bring back so that people can get pregnant. And I saw a lot of people commenting under it saying, oh, I'd love to try this, not realizing that they probably had already done it. And so we knew that it was from the 1920s and we also knew how regularly it was used Um, and so observing some of these kinds of conversations and knowing their history, um, helps us frame it when we're having personal relationships with people and having that dialogue, but we are also hesitant to jump into these conversations online because we're not medical practitioners and because we don't have training in these particular areas. We have training to view the dialogue, but oftentimes we were trying to figure out what the most responsible response was personally
0: hi folks lynn breaking in for just a second we've been talking to maggie quinlan and bethany johnson award-winning teachers and writers at the university of north carolina at charlotte Their recent book published by Rutgers University is titled, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise. And that book investigates the storied history of expertise around mothering in the media, ranging from newspapers, magazines, doctor's records, and personal papers of the 19th century to today's websites, Facebook groups, and Instagram feeds. On our Facebook page, we provide a link to Bethany and Maggie's health communication article and this book. You can get a 30% discount on their book by using the code 02AAAA17 on the Rutgers University Press website. For your convenience, we've placed a link to ordering this book on our Facebook page at dmpodcastwoub. Okay, back to the show. In your book, you also trace the historical roots of developmental milestones for babies, other Mm -hmm. sorts of advice that are in our surround and our social media. And while listeners might be somewhat familiar with the different stages of growth for babies and children, I suspect they're unaware, I know I was unaware until I read your book, about the connection between these baseline standards and the Better Baby Contest of the 1900s, right? The deep historical context of this contemporary communication. Can you talk to us a little about the historical
2: roots here? The Better Babies Contest started, we think the earliest one was in around 1908 in Louisiana. And we talk about... Um, Mrs. DeGarmo and, you know, her efforts, but we also got a little deeper into the history of eugenics, which was um, a form of scientific inquiry, let's call it, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Now, there are actual, there's a specialty in history where you can study this, and I am certainly not a eugenics historian. But what I can tell you is that I didn't understand the link between better babies, and the project of creating a better human race, which often means white race, mm. um, for many eugenicists at the time, and and this was very, very common, right? People talk about Margaret Sanger was eugenicist, sure, so was Teddy Roosevelt, so were most people in the progressive movement. It doesn't make their conclusions okay, but if you contextualize it, it's not odd, that any of these people believed this. It was very common for the time. So you would go to these events at the state fair, and your baby's head would be measured, and their eye color would be noted, and the texture of their skin and their height and what they were able to do. And some of these things that happened before World War One are still in our baby test today. For anyone listening, if you have a child. And you go and you look at those milestone documents at your doctor. Have you ever wondered why at 12 months old they think your baby can draw a line with a pencil? Most of us aren't handing our babies (laughs) pencils anymore. But that's where that comes from. That is from a Better Babies test. Um, So we were very surprised to see the longevity of some of these pieces. How it then impacted Dr. Arthur Gessel's work on child development. And the way some of these things really hang on when the tests were really rooted in trying to create um, a society where people had very similar bodies. We sort of eradicated many kinds of difference and there was no difference in abilities um, or capabilities. So it was a real effort to homogenize Hmm. um, the American Hmm. public in some really damaging ways. And that kind of backed up on your experience a little bit, Maggie, right? Yeah,
1: I've, all it always sort of hit me a little strange when people, you know, post like the, the one month, you know, picture of the baby and what the baby can do, um, that you see a lot of that on, on Instagram, um, people posting, you know, all of the different stages and what their baby can do at that stage. And those, seeing those posts always make me anxious because then I'm trying to think, well, can my baby do that? Or should my baby be able to sit up or stand up? And, um, and even at the doctor's office, the um, the charts always at the end show what they should be potentially doing at the next stage. And so, um, you know, people start thinking that that means that they should be doing it at, at their stage. Um, and throughout all of this, my son was born around, um, like, he, he was around almost an eight pound baby. And he was around, you know, 50 percent for weight, and then he would dip down really low, um, you know, down percentage points, and then he would come back up, and then he would dip back down again, and so we did, you know, I had to keep bringing him in for weight checks and for different, um, you know, different different checks, and, you know, because he was considered to have, like, fallen off the growth curve, and at one point, he was considered failure to thrive. And you know he was just at that at that marker, and that you know of course um, was very you know triggering to my husband and I um, because you know we were worried about what this could mean long term, or was he not eating enough? Was he not getting enough breast milk? Was there something? You know, should we start supplementing? And so trying to make sense of of what that needs, but also means, but also being aware of the flawed system. Of developmental milestones. And so you know that's that's um you know it was interesting to be going through some issues related to milestones after we had written that chapter.
0: Mm. So the milestone is just that, right? It's a baseline, but oftentimes, what we fail to remember is the range of healthy mm. that
2: surrounds that average mark. And, you know, Teddy's parents were not two Midwestern Scandinavian farmers, which is what the growth curve is based off of from the early 20th century. So, you know, (laughs) you could argue that Teddy really has no business being in the 50 to 75th percentile this late in his life. That wouldn't be sort of normative for his genetic input, you know, you know, right. would be if if you're comparing Teddy's parents against, you know, my partner who's six two your child's going to look very small, but that doesn't mean that your child is actually small for the size that is correct for them to be. But we keep using this model from the early 20th century and we keep applying it to everybody, no matter what their background is and no matter what the range of normal is for them. But if I were Maggie, I would have had the same reaction because this is the standard my child would continually be put up against. I can know inside and out that the standard is from a long time ago, that it's based on people likely very different from myself, but it doesn't feel different in the moment when you're being told that your child has failed to thrive. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. I have to tell you, I'm taking back to when our daughter was born, and during her toddler years, and you both know that she's now getting ready to graduate high school. Um, yeah. Right? She's 18 years old. But when she met Maggie, <laughs> she was three, right? Okay. So it's hard to believe. Time just does not slow down for anybody. But for the entire period through which parents receive Right, those percentages, Emma was in like the 90th percentage for head circumference. So, <laughs> so she had a really big head, right? Mm-hmm. And my husband and I often joked about it. The doctor's like, she's really healthy. She's fine, right? She's just, the circumference of her head is, is just large compared to the norm. And, and perhaps it still is today. Um, but 18 years ago, We also didn't have Instagram. We didn't have online support groups for mothers. And we didn't have smartphone apps that could position your baby in that broader curve, where for Emma, she would have been off the charts, right? Or for Teddy, he would have been too. So I can only imagine how emergent technologies intensify some of those anxieties that parents have.
2: Yeah, because you have 24-7 access to the ways your child may or may not be measuring up. Um, There are lots of ways in which that's not helpful. Um, It can be great to have access to information at all hours, like Maggie was talking about. Sometimes it's 3 o'clock in the morning and your child has a fever and you forget how high is high enough that I need to bring the child to the hospital. The internet can be very helpful. Um, And like Maggie said, you can post on a social media platform, and someone in another country can say, "Here it's this. I'm not sure where it is where you are, but you know, here's a baseline." Um, But in some of these developmental apps, um, like you said, it can just be a landmine to to be checking them. And so Maggie and I started. Sometimes we would just go on social media to get the lay of the land, but if we were having a particular struggle with a particular thing, we were very careful about how we engaged um, around that. So Maggie might have just you know, flipped really quickly through those milestone pictures during that period just as a protective you know, method for, for herself, and, and I've done similar things. At one point
0: in your book, I appreciated the notion that you both bring up about reconnaissance research—how you would <laughs> go in stealthily, get what you needed, and then exit as a self-protective mm-hmm. mechanism.
2: Yeah, don't get don't read all the comments, even though you researched all of those comments for your book. It's been hard for me to turn that off, so I try to use the reconnaissance mission or like the sort of reconnaissance style a lot. Get in. See, get the lay of the land, get on out. <laughs> it's been helpful, yeah. Right,
0: makes sense. Maggie, I want to go back and, and pick up a thread of something that you said earlier that I think is profoundly important. Amidst the many voices that are ever present and sharing advice to mothers, there are also experiences that are minimized or that are absent altogether, in our mediated performance of motherhood, and in our mediated construction of postpartum health concerns. Can you speak a little bit more to really the the importance of acknowledging what's not being said and by whom, and how we can pay better attention to that?
1: For example, in Bethany, in my research, um, we have a couple papers coming out about Instagram and infertility treatment, so how women used Instagram when going through treatment to get medical um, expertise from others going through it. And throughout it, we had a lot of trouble um, tracking down hashtags or, you know, usernames of women of color. And so, you know, as, as we were studying it and researching it, we realized that Voice was missing. We also realized that in our in those in the the two papers we have coming out about that that um, transgendered individuals aren't aren't represented as 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 well as we would like to see. Mm-hmm. And so you know it was actually from a couple who um one of the individuals identify as um as transgender. Trans yeah. Um. She she told us about Instagram and so, you know, that she used it while going through treatment. And so it was interesting that we still had trouble finding that. And, you know, Bethany and I have spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about, um, why is it that we're not able to pull up their experiences, right? That, you know, certain people's, um, lives are not as well represented in those worlds and you know I think to my own experience which may or may not be helpful about how you know we have to I I feel like I have to edit the background of my house in order to to take a picture of mm-hmm. a child or you know if my child is too close to the water without a life jacket that somebody is going to comment on something or somebody's going to say oh, you oh can- they will <laughs> yes, you can see the bones of, you know, a child's back and, you know, therefore that child is too skinny, right? And so people, you know, feel like they can comment on things, which even makes me not want to share um, my experience on social media, um, because of the, the potential backlash.
2: Maggie's exactly right. This is where history again becomes helpful. So, particularly when we were saying, you know, we don't see a lot of black and indigenous people of color in this infertility space, but we work, we have worked closely with Fertility for Color Girls and Reverend Dr. Stacey Edwards Dunn. We follow Broken Brown Egg. Um, we are out here following a lot of these accounts to make sure that we are following the narrative and actually reposting and forefronting these narratives because the reality is, uh, especially in the US, black women in particular are far more likely to be infertile than other groups of women. And so why do we think that's the opposite? Because we've had this myth about hyperfertility that extends all the way back through the period of enslavement, is written about in documents like Notes on Virginia, just that, um, you know, black women in particular and black men in particular, have um, hypersexual drives, are hyperfertile, and there was a real monetization, obviously, of reproduction. And so there's this way in which we are hearing, specifically, from Black women. And again, we we've talked about this at length with um, Reverend Stacy that you, there's, there's a feeling of double failure here. Not only am I not able to get pregnant, I'm the one that's supposed to be able to get pregnant easily. So I have now failed twice. And there's a real silencing effect that, that comes from that taboo. And so part of the reason we might not be finding those narratives as easily Is because people, like Maggie is saying, there's a lot of self-editing that happens because you don't want to have to engage that feeling of double failure or be shamed in public for expressing your journey. And so that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and writing about and trying to figure out how can we repost, you know, how can we find this new hashtag? In what way can we spread the message of that these really great organizations and other scholars are doing work on so that we make sure that, that we get this narrative out to a wider public?
0: Mm-hmm. I see both of you doing that in your own social media postings. So as we wrap up our conversation, I think that might be a good place for us to spend our our remaining time together. Your book clearly outlines the potential dangers of social media and how that has amplified the unintended consequences of advice giving during the Mm -hmm. early stages of, of motherhood but you also remain hopeful that social media can be a space for counter narratives, a way to flip that dominant script. I guess my question for you is how can we minimize the dark side and optimize the empowering potential of social media in the context of early cycle of, of motherhood?
1: Well, I mean, I think this book because you know we do deal with different crises that individuals may experience. Um, you know, I definitely see that as a counter narrative. That you know, when when writing the the book, I hadn't thought of some of the, the crises, and it wasn't until you know we were exposed to um, you know exposed to to friends or family members or people mm-hmm. in facebook groups who were going through, you know, very very difficult times. And so to be able to include their stories in in our book was a way for us to to share stories that, you know, we, that we hadn't um, experienced or, or may never.
2: And you know, in the book it's not an advice book and it's not a parenting book which um, will hopefully come as a relief to many of your readers. <laughs> we we don't feel we have anything to add there. We're in the thick of it with them. But one of the things that we do do throughout the book, whether we're talking about trans fertility or black women dying in the early postpartum period, or the ways that um, parents are sort of erased from um, much of the talk about NICU work, and, and often nurses are too. What we're trying to get out here is if we include the story first, then that gives people tools for how to find these alternative narratives in their own social media practices. So one of the things I really learned after the child loss chapter, parents just said over and over again, I just want people to use my child's name because it feels like they are with me or their, their life is happening for a moment when you say their child's name. And I think, you know, we really go in deep in that chapter about sort of American ideas about death and dying and how complicated that is. I know there are a lot of great scholars in HealthCom that work on death and dying. So one of the things I learned from that is just saying a child's name. So there was a woman who posted in a local breastfeeding group a picture of her daughter who was born sleeping, was the language that she used. And this woman continued to pump and donated her breast milk. And she just wanted to share the picture so that we could sit with her and witness her daughter. Um, And so people were going on in the comments and saying lovely things, you know, I'm so sorry that you're so generous and all of these wonderful things. But because I had done this research, because I had sat with and held these narratives with Maggie and with the people in our book, I went on and said, what is her name? Hmm. And she told me her name is, you know, Hannah, Hannah Lucille. And um, so I kept saying her name in the comments. And I went back a week later when she said, remember my daughter in a day when you see bees and the green is out. And I said, I see Hannah today, you know, because I needed her to hear her daughter's name or see it in print. It felt like that was the best way that I could engage in and step into her narrative to say, I can't fix this. I'll never be able to lighten your grief, but I see that your daughter lived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And our hope is that, you know, medical providers, you know, different policymakers will potentially start to become more aware of the role of social media in people's lives that, you know, people are complaining about doctors in mom's groups or, you know, saying great things about, about doctors and, you know, doctors are telling us not to Google something. And that I think at this in 2019, right, we can't do that anymore that Mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge that social media is a part of women's lives that women have, um, you know, it's a privilege, right. To have a smartphone and, women use smartphones to connect with others more than men. Like There's research to show that. And so just acknowledging that that's a part of somebody's life and how they communicate, I think, has the potential to, um, to change how it is that we think about its role.
2: And finally, I think, you know, for the men who are having babies, like some of the people we interviewed and, um, you know, people that have worked with Maggie over the years, You might be living somewhere where no one has your experience and you might be parenting in a non-traditional way. You might not identify as a woman and be having children. You might be non-binary or genderqueer or you might have a lower socioeconomic status and you still have questions and you want to find your people. Well, that's the bright side of social media, right? They may not be at the top of Instagram's algorithm, but you can find your people, and you can find people with a similar narrative to yours and a similar story, and you can build those connections. What we saw with um, infertility patients on Instagram, we saw people that hadn't told their families they were in treatment because they didn't feel like they could, and they're sending care packages to people across the country that they met on Instagram. There is space on social media for these alternate narratives, and Maggie's right we would love to convince medical systems to take these things seriously because whether or not they approve, people need to find other people who know their story and they will whether or not a doctor says it's a good idea.
0: Amen. I see the work that you're doing in extension of your book, And please let me know if I'm getting this wrong. Um, But I want to direct listeners to how to find you on Facebook. Is it Johnson
2: and Quinlan Research? Is there an and, Maggie? It might just be Johnson Quinlan Research. They could try both. Okay.
0: (laughs) So I want to draw listeners' attention to how you've taken the ideas shared in your book and they continue to live and breathe and shift as you continue to encounter more research. And you're sharing these messages. You're creating this space in social media that does challenge some of those assumptions that can have unintended consequences for mothers and their well-being. And whether you're sharing cartoons or the latest op-ed from the New Yorker or Washington Post. Perhaps you're talking about the ever-present shaming of of particularly mothers in terms of what they feed their children, right? Is it organic? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, What aren't you including in their diet? Your social media is a space that provides those different discourses the different stories that that we hope will gain more traction and provide um, ongoing support for individuals in the midst of some of these challenges so i just want to commend you not just for your book but for your social activist stance and how you want to take that scholarship and really help integrate it into the everyday lives of people as they live them and we just don't see that enough. So I'm, I'm really inspired by both of you and the work that you're doing. Thank
1: you, Thank you so much. It's um, definitely being on this podcast is, is, is a way for us to, to share our message. So we really appreciate being invited and um, that you were able to um, read our book and um, that, you know, our defining moments, hopefully that people have access to it for, you know, for free yeah. um, is, mm-hmm. is really exciting for us.
0: Fantastic. Thanks again, Maggie and Bethany, for joining us on this episode of Defining Moments. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at dmpodcastwoub. On our Facebook page, we provide links to Bethany and Maggie's health communication article. And remember, you can get a 30% discount on their recent book titled, You're Doing It Wrong, Mothering Media and Medical Expertise. You can get that discount by using the code 02AAAA17. Again, that code was 02AAAA17. You can use that code on the Rutgers University Press website. For your convenience, we've placed a link to ordering the book on our Facebook page. We hope you'll take time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Go in peace and love one another.